Matthew chapter 11, that's the case. In Matthew chapter 11, would you turn there and join me this morning? We're going to read about somebody who began to wonder if God is always good to him. As you're turning, the fellows are moving around the auditorium. They're handing out notes for you to be able to follow along. But let me do just a couple things here. First of all, let me ask you a question. What percent of Americans make a New Year's resolution each year? What do you think that would be? About how many? 80%? Let me give you, give, you, give you an idea. We'll do it this way. You guess which one of these is correct. About how many Americans will make a New Year's resolution? Some said 80. 40. You can answer. You can talk. Okay. Yeah. 55. Do I have 65, 75, 75? About 45% of Americans will make, make some type of resolution. That's the big the one question that we got, but let's go a little bit further. What are the most common New Year's resolutions people will make? Lose weight. Exercise. Anything else? Save more money. Anything else? What's that? What about the house? Fix up the house. Okay. Okay. What was that? It must have been good, but you're not going to repeat it, whoever it was. Can you think of any other resolutions people make? What's that? Stop certain habits. Okay. Okay. Preach short. I'm not even there. I mean, I'm not even thinking that one. Okay, here's a bunch. Here's the top ten that show up as far as, you know, I didn't put them in any particular order. But those are the ones that show up the most that in the last two years that people would say that they're going to be working. I like the second from the bottom. Okay, I'll take that resolution anytime, starting right now in church. Here would be the moment. Okay. Which one do you think, uh, what do you think of all these resolutions? Which one's the most popular? Diet and exercise. In fact, the way that they're listed is in the top ten in the order that they're given. And I still will agree with number two from the bottom. Let me ask you, how long do most resolutions last before the person stops? Somebody said a minute? <laughs> 22% stop after one week. The remaining, it's 40% after a month and most after three months. What's the number one reason people stop? Time? Somebody said, can't do it is a really good one. <laughs> yeah, okay. The number one reason that they say, the number one is that when people make resolutions, they have no clear goal or no plan to follow. It's just, I'm going to do this. I don't know how I'm going to do it. I'm going to sleep more, but I don't know how I'm going to do it. But they have no plan. Okay, what I'd like to do this morning is I would like to give you a New Year's resolution that you who are believers would make based on Matthew chapter 11. It's one that every single one of us, it's going to affect. Okay, every one of us can make this resolution because it's going to affect and afflict every single one of us in the sense of how we're going to respond. Now, I'm going to share that with you a little bit further, but let me tell you about Matthew 11 first of all. Let's set the scene before we get to the resolution from the example. In the story of Matthew chapter 11, you have the setting that's going this way. It is the story that's told about John the Baptist, who at this point, he is going to be in prison. He is going to spend about 18 months at the max, somewhere the guesstimate is 15, 18 months that he's going to be in prison. Where we're picking up the story is he is in prison at the time. It is during part of that period of time. And he's going to send two of his disciples who are visiting him in prison. He's going to say, I want you to go and talk to Jesus. I've been hearing things about Jesus. And he's going to ask a question. And he's going to send these guys his facts, his text, is two men walking. That's the way it used to be done. Two men walking. And they're going to say to Jesus, John the Baptist has a question. And the question is this. Are you the one that should come or should we look for another? Did you see it in your text? Jump down into the story. And it came to pass when Jesus had made an end of commanding his 12 disciples, he departed to teach and to preach in their cities. Now when John had heard in the prisons the works of Jesus, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Are you the one that should come or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to the two men, Go and show John again those things which you do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame are walking, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. And so in that story, what's happening is we understand something that's very important. We understand by this example that God allows strong saints to face major struggles. We don't want to hear this part. 
Okay, but this is going to affect your New Year's resolution that I'm going to encourage you to take. And to understand why I'm going to encourage you to take a certain resolution, you have to understand that according to the Bible, God allows strong saints to face major struggles. In this story, that strong saint is John the Baptist. Now, how do I know he's strong? Well, if we started just dissecting a little bit of his life and going back, we'd remind ourselves that he has made some commitments. We go back into the story and we know that from a child, his parents were told he's not supposed to let the razor come to his head. He's not supposed to drink the, the vine. That correlates or that parallels the vow of the Nazarite from the Old Testament. Somebody who said, I'm going to commit myself for a period of time or in this case, in John's case, like it was with Samson, it was to be a lifetime vow that they are committed to being dedicated wholly to the Lord. But if we went and studied in Luke chapter 3 and listened to one of his full-length messages, we would see that this man had serious commitments to God. He's standing there before the crowd. And in that crowd, that's the text where the Roman soldiers come and they say, what are we supposed to do to show repentance? And he says, take your wages, be accepted, and don't bully people. You who are coming, some of them are coming, and they're different business people. And he's telling them, stop overcharging. He's going to tell some, if you're asked to carry somebody's baggage, carry it not just one mile, but carry it a couple miles. And he's going to be talking to a crowd that includes Jewish leaders from the capital city, and he's going to call them vipers, you know, the, uh, that you need to repent. He's going to be very bold. He's going to be very brazen. He's going to be very outspoken. He's committed to, to being the messenger that God has called him to be. I think his commitment is seen in another way that sometimes we overlook. I was sharing with our family that I was reading an article that in this article it was talking to several different major composers in the last couple of years who are in charge of orchestras and putting together tour groups. And I, they were asked this one question, what seat in the orchestra is the hardest seat to fill? And every one of them immediately said the second violinist. They said we can find plenty who want to play first violin. But to those who want to play the backup... No, nobody wants to do that. And I found it interesting that that is so true. Most of us, we don't want to do second fiddle. We don't want to be the, 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 the assistant. We'd rather be the one in charge. Well, John the Baptist, who is very talented, John the Baptist, who is very bold, he makes it very clear in some of his statements. He says, I'm only a voice. I'm just a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the paths you know, for the Lord. He says in John 3, I'm not the Christ. When they asked him, they said, who are you? I'm not the Christ. I'm just the one who the messenger sent before him. He's, you know, he's the groom. I'm just the friend of the groom. And John then goes on and makes that one fabulous statement. He must increase. I must. Okay. And so John is very, very... He's, he's very, very um, committed to the Lord. He's a strong saint in that regard. His other comments that he makes is when the group's there at the River Jordan and Jesus is coming, he says to his own disciples, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. He is very, very clear in his teaching that he talks about, I am, I am supposed to be you know, a leader, I'm supposed to be preaching, but it's all for him. And he's the one that when he comes, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoelaces. And by the way, you remember he's using a, a colloquialism. He's using a phrase that would distinguish who's the lowest servant in the house. The lowliest of whoever you would have hired to be servants in your house. They're the ones that when you come in, they untie your shoes. They give you the, the foot massage. They give you the washing of the feet. And John says, I'm not even there. I'm not worthy of doing that to this one. He is so amazing. He is so great. And so John's comments indicate he believes that Christ is the one. He believes that Jesus Christ is the Savior. He believes that he should be humble and surrendered to Christ. There's no doubt. He's a strong saint. But then we take it a little bit further. He is, he is not only strong, the indication because of what he says, but notice in Matthew 11 what Jesus says about him. In Matthew 11, after the messengers leave, Jesus says to the crowd, and he talks about John the Baptist. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken in the wind? <laughs> but what went you out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiments? Behold, they that wear soft clothing, they're in the king's houses. But what went you out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, much more than a prophet. For this is he, he's talking to John the Baptist, of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, which shall prepare your way before thee. 
Verily I say therefore unto you, among them that are born of woman, there has not risen a greater than John the Baptist, notwithstanding he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. The point is, Jesus commended John the Baptist. He was a strong saint. Jesus makes many comments about him. Then his enemies, if you go to Mark, you would read where Herod, the one who kills him, makes comment about John. It says, Herod feared John knowing he was a just man and a holy one. Even his enemies understood he is a godly man. He's a strong, strong believer. And yet, this strong believer, who is so bold and so brazen, this strong soloist, who went into the wilderness and didn't need a crowd to stand behind him to make clear his message. This strong man who would stand before the, the hoi polloi of society of that day and say, you need to repent. This strong fellow had a moment of real doubts. He's in prison. How long that prison, prison month when he sends a question, we don't know. We, like I said, 15, 18 months is the time he's in prison until he dies. Somewhere in that period of time, he's starting to be wondering... Jesus, are you the one? This is, this is John who said, behold the Lamb of God. This is John who said, I am not worthy to untie his shoes. This is John that said, he must increase, I must decrease. And then he's now sitting in prison. He's going, is he really the one? Is he really the one that I've been talking about? And did I get it wrong? Why would John, as strong as, why would somebody who's strong in the Lord, all of a sudden start wavering a little bit? Can I give you several possibilities based on the scriptures? I'll give you one that I'm going to call. It has to do with his relationship with Christ. And, and let, me, let me see if I can set it up this way. John and Jesus have only ministered in their period of time that they've lived. They've only ministered a short time where their, their ministries overlapped. In fact, when in John 3 we hear more about their ministering, Jesus' disciples are doing baptism, but they're doing it at a different spot than John is. And then John gets arrested about that time. And this is just a few months into Jesus' ministry. John gets arrested, and he's put into prison. Jesus, who had been baptizing near to Anon, Salem, because there's much water there. He and John were both conducting baptisms in that wilderness area. When John gets arrested and hauled off to prison... Jesus leaves this southern area. Jesus goes back to his home area in Galilee. And he spends the next 18 months in Galilee preaching and teaching and instructing and, and working with his disciples. While he's in Galilee, John the Baptist is in prison down in southern Judea. They haven't spent much time. They have, as children, we don't know if they had a time together, but as men in ministry, they only had a short time where he baptized John baptized Jesus, and then they kind of ministered parallel, but not together. And then John, Jesus leaves. By the way, when Jesus is up in that area of Galilee for these 18 months, this is when he does the majority of the miracles that you read about in Scripture. He is doing many miracles. Every city that he goes into, he heals the many. He heals all. It's a tremendous amount of miracles take place. That's what leading, is leading John to say, I hear of all these things that are happening. Because a lot of things are happening. Jesus is becoming popular. Even though he's way up north in Galilee, news is flooding back towards Jerusalem. Everybody's talking about Jesus. Is he Messiah? And they're questioning him. It's during that time that the Sanhedrin will start sending investigators up there, which they're supposed to do. They'll go up and start asking Jesus questions in order to find out, is he truly um, um, one doing miracles or is it all fake? And so they start getting involved. John is hearing in prison about Jesus. That's how much the popularity is spreading throughout this region. And John is wondering if he's the one. Part of the reason, therefore, that John is struggling is, I'm going to use for sake of alliteration, paltry exposure. He hasn't had a lot of personal time with the Lord. When, no matter who it is, how strong you are, no matter how bold you are for the Lord, if you and I don't get opportunity to spend a lot of time and exposure with the Lord, we're going to be affected by that. It's going to catch up to us. Let me point out something else, and this is where I want to focus on the most, is his personal experiences. John's personal experiences get him to begin to wonder. And he's not the only one who does that. A lot of here who are strong saints, some of your personal experiences are like John's. You end up in a prison and you say, uh, God, are you really there? Let me see if I can explain He's 18 months in the prison, and he's put in there, you know the story, by King Herod. This is the, one of the sons of Herod the Great who tried to kill Jesus when Jesus was two years old. And King Herod gets really upset with John because John is preaching to him. 
What happened is King Herod had been given a tetrarchy, is the title that's, that's given by the Romans, but he didn't like it because it wasn't official enough. He wanted more of a noble title, so he called himself King Herod. The Romans didn't call him that, they called him the Tetrarch. But he used the word king, and he claimed that he was king, and so he is the king of Galilee. He's in charge of that region. And uh, during one of his periods of times, he goes back to Rome. Uh, I'm sorry, he, to, to secure his authority here, he marries the princess of, of the king of Arabia, one of the daughters. And then after that, he goes to Rome, pays a visit in Rome to the emperor and getting some more things. And while he's in Rome, he's visiting, staying with his brother and his brother's family. And he and his sister-in-law have an affair in Rome. He is so smitten by Herodias that he advised her to come back to Galilee with him, leave, her, leave his brother, her husband, come back to Galilee with me, and we're going to live here, and I'll dump my wife, which he does. He gets back to Galilee, he divorces the woman who is the, the daughter of the, of the, the uh, king of Arabia, and he then has this affair, lived in an affair with his sister-in-law, and John the Baptist comes on the scene around this time. And John the Baptist makes it very clear that you're doing wrong. Now, John isn't preaching this, don't be mistaken, John isn't preaching this like on the internet and in a, you know, in a blue paper. Rather, he is going directly to King Herod. He even says to him personally, he reproves he and Herodias to their faces, as we read in, in Matthew, or Mark and Luke. He tells them, what you're doing is wrong. You're living in sin. You're, you've taken your brother's wife, which was wrong, and you're living together as an unwed couple. This is wrong. He's very pointed about it. Herod and Herodias get really upset. And so Herod's response is, Herod puts him in prison for a period of time. If you think this through, John goes to jail for doing good. John is preaching truth, and he ends up in jail. He is pointing out somebody else's wrongdoing, and he doesn't get a trial. He doesn't get a fair shake out of this, but because he's doing what God told him to do, which was preach the word, tell people to make straight their paths, Messiah's coming, because he did that, he ends up in jail. Does it ever happen that some people end up in real problem times and real difficult when they do right? Yeah, yeah, it happened to him. So in other words, his personal experience is, I'm in trouble and I don't deserve it. Have you ever had those moments where you say, why did I lose my job? I didn't deserve it. Why did I end up in this conflict with a neighbor? I didn't start it. It's totally undeserved. That's what happened to John the Baptist. You know, you have some of you, you work for a company for years. You're faithful, reliable. And all of a sudden they come and they say, we're scaling back and you're done. You've been faithful. You've been loyal. Some of you have been loyal and you've had this experience. You've been loyal. You've been working at your marriage. And then all of a sudden one day they, your spouse comes in and says, I don't love you anymore. You, don't, you didn't deserve this. You didn't plan on this. Some of you say, hey, I'm working really hard to take care of my parents. They may be elderly. They may be, you're still in their household. And you're doing what's right. You're trying to treat them properly. You're trying to pay them respect. And all of a sudden, they blow up and they accuse you. And they say all kinds of mean things and wrong things about you. You might be one of those who... You share the word of God and you bring that person, that coworker, that family member to Christ and you're training them and you're discipling them and you're loving on them and all of a sudden after a few months they turn on you and they say, you didn't care for me enough. You've never done something for me. You, you weren't a spiritual help to me. And it breaks your heart. You, you, you invest in your child. You bring that child to maturity. And all of a sudden, one day, you, you get the phone call that your child's on drugs and your child, or you find the paraphernalia and you go, what? this isn't what we planned on. This isn't what we invested in. And when you go and talk to your 16-year-old about using drugs, then they accuse you of never loving me. And you go, I'm only doing what's right and I'm getting kicked in the teeth. Does that ever happen? Oh, man. Some of you have had this. You serve others to the best of your ability. You labor, you teach, you do whatever. And then all of a sudden somebody comes walking up to you and they accuse you of being a bad example. You don't even know what they're talking about. But they say they will never want to be in ministry with you again, serving with you. You, you serve God. You with this joy and this zeal. And then you go to the doctor's office and they say, you need to sit down because we're going to talk about cancer. 
You, you got a situation where a brother and sister in the Lord, you want to help them out. There's, they're struggling and they're doing something and you want to talk to them about what they're doing with their kids or in their relationship. And you sit down and you try to help them out in grace and in kindness. And all of a sudden they accuse you of putting your nose where it doesn't belong. And then they start telling others around you false stories that others believe. Or maybe you're one of those that you're trying so hard and you're going... I don't get it. I don't deserve the way people are talking about me. I don't deserve the way I'm being treated. That's John the Baptist. That's what's happening in prison. You know, it's undeserved, but also, man, this is something he does not want. Think with me about John the Baptist. Where has he been living for the last months? In the wilderness. We would call him a modern-day mountain man. We would say he's an outdoorsman. And all of a sudden he gets put into the prison of Macarus, which was Herod's, Herod's prison there in, in that region. And he's in this, what we understand, this cold, dark, totally without windows, jail. And this guy who's used to being, having freedom, moving around, living out in the rugged area, he is now in this damp, dark area. And he's not done anything wrong. It's not what anybody would choose, but that's his experience. I mean, none of you would choose additional health problems. None of you would choose conflicts with coworkers or neighbors. None of you would choose to have a Christian friend start attacking you and saying false things. None of you would choose to have your child turn on you or your spouse leave you. You wouldn't choose that. This is something that he is experiencing and what makes it worse is this phrase, the phrase he says, I hear of God's blessings. Do you know what that means? He is of that, of that mindset that all of a sudden, while he, the prophet of God, is sitting in jail, God is blessing. God is moving. God hasn't abandoned ministry, but it's not happening to John. John isn't the one who's benefiting from this. And, and he could easily say, I'm your prophet, I'm the only one sent before Messiah and I'm the one that's hearing about other people blessed but I'm not getting any now. Yo, Lord, my address has changed. I'm down here in the bottom of the prison. And it's a battle. It's a struggle. You know, he, he's like the individuals who see relatives saved and, and you, they stand up and they give testimony and you sit there and go, but my relatives aren't getting saved. Somebody will stand up and say, God has provided in such a marvelous way and able to take care of my debts. And you go, I got debts and I never got one of those marvelous ways. He's one of those individuals that somebody says, I prayed and God took away my ailment. And you're praying for your child and there is no relief from the ailment. He's, it's one of those times where, you know, somebody's talking about, hey, I, I found this great deal that God just opened up the doors. And you're going, I never get a door opened up. It never feels like that. Somebody gets up and says, we recovered our relationship with parents or kids or marriage. And you go, mine is not recovering. It's getting worse. Yeah, some, so simple. That some, some here have said, yeah, I hear of others getting notes from the missionaries. I don't get any. It's just, it's not worth it. It's just not worth it. And you start struggling and you say, it's not blessings that I am getting, but others are getting. Is it because I've done something? God, do I have bad breath? God, God do, you, do you not like my tuft? You know, am I doing something wrong, God? That's what John is feeling. And strong saints get there. Now, you may have not. And God bless you if you have never had a moment like that. But John the Baptist did. John the Baptist had a real, real problem. His personal experiences were, were it was struggling for him. And think about it from his point of view. He's coming. He wants a productive ministry. He wants to serve God. He's been serving God. He's dedicated his life. And all of a sudden he's shut up and he can't serve. Can't do what he wants to do. Can't preach the way he wanted to be preaching. Can't serve the way he used to serve. Some of you know what that's like. Some of you feel that prison of old age. You can't do the same ministries you wanted to do. And say, God, why am I still here? It's real. It happens that even good people, all of a sudden, they struggle because of personal experiences. I think what adds to this is his perceived expectations. It happens all the time. We have expectations of somebody, and when they don't meet our expectations, man, a days can we have problems. 
It can happen with kids, with parents, with spouses. It can happen with employers, employees. It can happen with fellow believers. When people don't meet what we expect them to meet, well, think of this. John the Baptist is sitting in prison. And Jesus is not doing what John has preached. If you were to turn and read the entire chapter in Luke chapter 3, you would read John's message where he's talking about when the Messiah comes, the Messiah is going to set things straight. So you need to make way, make your path straight, get ready. Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he's going to be coming in judgment. You who are doing wrong, you better be careful. You need to flee from the evil. You need to bring forth fruits of repentance. Remember, when he comes, he's going to chop down the trees that don't bear fruit. He comes with a message that God is going to judge. You're going to reap what you sow. And he's warning them. And then as in in Luke chapter 3, he basically says, you better change what you're doing. And he tells them, and that's when he tells the soldier, stop overcharging, take a cloak and, and uh, from somebody, give, if they ask you for a cloak, give them more. And if they ask you to carry something, you carry twice as much. And he's saying, change your ways, change your ways. But if you don't change your ways, he goes on, he says, God is going to come and he's going to cleanse his threshing floor. All the crop that's been there, he's going to wipe it all away, and especially the chaff. He's going to start all over, and all that's chaff. All that that isn't good, he's going to burn. It's a message of damnation and doom and repentance, and he's preaching truth. Messiah one day is going to come as a judge. Messiah one day is going to, is going to inspect the fruit. And Messiah one day is going to, all of a sudden, he's going to have people who aren't doing right. They're going to bear punishment for what they've done. And John's expecting that. But now all of a sudden John's in prison. And he's hearing about a Jesus who Jesus is very merciful. Jesus is telling them they can't even stone a woman taken in adultery. Jesus has one of those tax collectors who is ripping people off as one of his twelve. Jesus is doing something I didn't expect him to do. Look at the, look at the text. Jesus points out their difference. Jump down in verse 18. And he says, John and I had different approaches. Look at verse 18. John came neither eating nor drinking, and you said he has a devil. So he was a real, uh, he was a, uh, uh, an individual who was real strict in his eating and his habits. The son of man comes eating and drinking, and you said, behold, he's gluttonous. He's a winebibber. He's a friend of publicans and sinners. And so Jesus is saying, you notice the difference. John and I did things different from one another. When people do things different from us, we often question, what are they doing? Are they really what we expect them to be? They're not as Christian as I am because they're different from me. Well, John the Baptist is sitting in prison, and I think one of the contributing factors is not only his experience, but his expectations. He's looking and saying, Jesus, why aren't you judging? Jesus, why aren't you setting things right? If you're really the Messiah, if you're the one that I've been preaching from, how come Herod is still in charge? Herod, a wicked man. You said we were going to have a change in in a kingdom, and it's not happening. Why am I still in prison underneath these Roman rulers? Why are we still contending with this? Lord, I don't understand. I just don't understand what you're doing. Have you ever had those moments where you don't understand? Where your expectation is, you're saying, you know, I'm going to go out and I'm going to witness and people are going to get saved. And they're going to hear the word and I'm going to just be rejoicing. And not only do they not get saved, but some of those people, all of a sudden, they tell you you're going to get fired because you're witnessing. You have the expectation that if you pray and fast over some type of conflict, it's going to absolutely get resolved. And you're praying that way. But then all of a sudden, the conflict gets worse. You have the expectation that when you teach a Bible study, people are going to be so thrilled by your ability to teach and what you're sharing and their growth in the faith. But all of a sudden you go home from the Bible study and you find out that in one night, the washer, the vacuum, the TV, everything broke down. You say, God, wait a minute. I'm trying to be honest at work. I'm trying to be ethical. But then the dishonest person gets the, the raise. You don't. Does it ever happen that all of a sudden you serve at church and on the way home you get in a car accident? You, you say, God, I'm going to worship you here on a Sunday morning. You get home and find your, your house is robbed. Because somebody knew you'd be at church. You have the situation where you give charitably and you say, if I give to God's work, God's going to take care of things. And as you give charitably, all of a sudden your sales go way down. And you're going, well, what am I going to do now? 
You read your Bible over and over with the expectation that as I read the Word of God, I am going to be pure and holy, and yet afterwards I'm still battling that besetting sin. Now, I'm not saying we should give up all those things that we're doing right, but this is where we struggle. This is where life is at for some of you. That you say, I had an expectation. I I thought I was going to go to college. And when I go to a Christian college, everybody will be so Christian and nice. And I will have find a utopia. Everybody will be like angelic reunions at college. And I got stuck, stuck with a real jerk as a roommate. And wow. I thought when we got married and had kids, peace in the house. When we have babies, we are just going to look and cuddle them and cradle them, and they will always be peaceful and sweet. Nobody told me about the midnight, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock. I get back in bed and the alarm rings to get up. When we said, I do, I thought everything is going to be wonderful. And it is, right? Amen. Amen. Yeah, man, come on. This is your moment to get a point. Say amen. (laughs) And we'll never have problems. And then it happens. I'm going to join that church. I'm going to get in that church. And everybody there is so wonderful. None of them have any problems. And then they don't talk to me for a week because all they do is sit there and cry. And your expectation is just kind of, you know, what's wrong with them? Well, John is in that, possible, that situation. I mean, we can just list them out. God's allowing things to hurt them. And the bad stuff isn't going away. God's not doing what John expected. He, just think, he's not free to do what he wanted to do and used to do. The evildoers are still in power and authority. They're still in the Senate and the Congress and, and in the authority of the, weather, you know, the, the White House, the Brown House, whatever house they are. And there's no end in sight. And you look at it and go, oh, man, how can this happen? Uh, just remember, just remember, just because you struggle doesn't mean you're bad, you're weak, that even those who are strong will hit these moments. We could, we could list off all kinds of people. We just did a whole series on Elijah, who is strong. And he says, Lord, it's enough. We could go back to others about Job, perfect, upright, bragged upon by God. And then when all the, the issues came, he's going, Lord, I don't understand. I don't get it. Jeremiah is preaching the word of God. He's thrown into jail. And after he's thrown into the pit and in jail, here's what he says. He says, oh, Lord, you deceived me. You deceived me. I'm in derision daily. He says, everybody, they mock me. You lied to me about ministry. I thought when I got into ministry, everybody would love me. That's Jeremiah. The Apostle Paul, he writes about facing persecutions. He says, we were pressed out of measure. We, in so much, we despaired of even living anymore. It happens to strong saints. They face major struggles. But can I give you this other thought? God wants those struggling saints to remain strong. God wants struggling saints to remain strong. This ties into the New Year's resolution. Because look at the text. Look at the text, what Jesus says in verse 6. This is the missing beatitude where he says, Blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. He makes that comment as the men are walking away and it's a declaration of what Jesus wants. By the way, this isn't the only time he made a comment like this. He's with the disciples. He's saying, I'm going to leave you tonight. Let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. You're distraught. You're distressed. Hang on, guys. Hang on. And he makes this comment in the middle of that upper room discourse. I have spoken these things so that you would not be stumbled, is the word, that offended. It's that same way, that you wouldn't fall flat on your face. I'm warning you. I'm telling you, this happens. Christianity is not the easiest life. Now, the retirement program is out of this world. It's amazing. But the process of living the Christian life, it's going to be difficult. Okay? It's going to be hard. I'm not pulling any punches with you. He's telling the disciples that. 
Well, in, Mark, in Matthew chapter 11, where he says, Blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended. Watch how we break it down. The word is the same word that he uses, that makurios, that he uses earlier in the Beatitudes. It's the idea of having inner peace, inner joy. He talks about anyone, whosoever. Whosoever does not stumble. The word literally is the idea of being scandalized. The idea of quitting God. Falling away from the Lord. Giving in to evil, just saying, that's it, I've had enough, I give up. It's like the individuals who, who are facing some of those life's big trials. That all of a sudden that individual says, wait a minute, it's just too difficult. Um, I, it's too hard. My family's falling apart. I'm just going I'm to stop worshiping God. My, my income is stretched to absolute limits. I don't deserve it. I've worked hard. I've tried to be charitable. God, you failed me. I give up on you. No, no. The strong person who says, I want to remain strong, the struggling person, they're going to continue to serve. They're going to worship. They're not going to give up on Christ. They're not going to stop because it's gotten a little bit difficult. They're going to persevere. They're going to stick with the stuff. They're going to do what Joseph did. That Joseph, even though he's in prison, even though his brothers turned against him, even though his fellow workers turned against him, even though his fellow prisoners didn't even do what they said, he remained faithful to the Lord despite all that. And the Lord honored that faithfulness. We could talk about individuals like John Bunyan. They even bring his family to plead with him. To stop sharing the word of God. Don't share the word of God. His wife, his kids are at the jail side. They're saying we don't have food. If you just stop sharing the word of God, we will, they will let you out. And he doesn't. Instead, he pens that book that many of you have read, Pilgrim's Progress. We can talk about individuals. A group of missionaries went to Zaire. It's the 100th anniversary, and the believers there are getting together in a number of the churches, and they're having a great celebration. A hundred years since the missionaries first came to share the word. The initial few years, they didn't listen. The peoples there in that region, they, they really distrusted the missionaries. But it was only after a couple decades went by that they started listening. And so nobody really knows what happened, the whole story, but they're celebrating that eventually... The, uh, the missionaries stuck it out, and eventually peoples, some of their relatives, their parents, their grandparents got saved, and it passed on, and a lot more got saved. In the middle of a celebration, there's an old, old, old man. An elder from one of the villages comes, and he's being helped along by a couple different people because he can barely walk, and he asks if he can have a few words to speak to everybody. They want him to be heard, so they give him the devices so that he can speak, but he's shaking. He's elderly. And as he's sharing, his voice is breaking. But he tells them a story that nobody knew. The story is that when he was just a little boy, he remembers his father telling him about when the missionaries first came. That they listened to the missionaries, but they didn't know about these white devils. They didn't know whether to believe them or not. So his father, along with some of the other elders, got together. Listening after a few years to these missionaries, they decided that they were going to test the missionaries. The way to test somebody, they concluded, is, yes, watch their life, but more importantly, watch their life when they are facing life's greatest trials. So they decided that they would bring into the life of the missionaries life's greatest trial. They secretly began poisoning the missionaries. They poisoned their children, they poisoned the wives, they poisoned the men. Those missionaries continued to work, but some of them were getting sick. Then it started happening after about a year, year and a half. A couple of the children died. Then one of the wives died. Then another one, then more children, then one of the missionaries died. And they were watching them, how they would live in the face of death. Those missionaries remained strong and loyal. And as a result of their loyalty and remaining strong in the midst of such struggles, then the nationals there in that region said what they are saying is true. They believe what they're saying. And they started listening. Listening, not just with their ears, but with their hearts. And all of a sudden, evangelism and revival spread through that region. And dozens after dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens got saved and churches were planted until a hundred years later. There they are at this group that included several thousand born-again believers. 
because the missionaries who were struggling with death and disease that they didn't understand where it came from, they remained strong. John, I want you to know. I want you to know that you can remain strong. This is the message I'm giving you, John. Blessed is he that is not stumbled because of me. Blessed is he who is struggling, but he doesn't fall down. He remains strong. And John, for you to do that, you need to listen up. Look at what he said. He said to the disciples, go tell John. Tell him, go and show, he says, go and show John those things which you do hear and see. You share what I'm doing. You listen to, you, you hear my words, you take them back to John and you tell John, listen, here's what Jesus is saying, here's what Jesus is doing. For you and I to remain strong, we need to do what, John, what Jesus told John, listen up. Listen to the works and the messages of Jesus Christ. Look around. Look around and see how I am still doing things. Look around. You see, he says, you see the lame that they're walking. You see the blind that they're getting their sight. You see the deaf that they're hearing. You see the dead that are raised. Look up. It's not happening to you, but I am still working. I am still moving. I haven't lost any of my potency, my power. I am still on the throne. And though I'm not working exactly the same thing that you think I should work in your life, I'm still there. My power is still on display. I am still doing the miracles. I'm still doing the work. I'm still saving the souls. I am carrying out the mission that I've been given to, me, to do. Listen to my words. Look around, John. Look around at what God's doing and then let go and let God. What I mean by that is this. Jesus sent no other explanation back to John. He never said, oh, by the way, and tell John that he's going to be in jail for a few more months, and then what's going to happen is he's going to be given up on a platter, a silver platter, because there's going to be a wicked dance done and Herod's going to you know, make a promise. He never gives him explanation. It's like Job. For all that Job is weeping and crying, God never says to him, oh, Job, here is why I did what I did. Never. God only says, you need to trust me. Why are you questioning me? I'm in charge. I am the sovereign. You need to let go and let God. John, you need to just listen. Stop thinking I need to live up to your expect expectations. Stop thinking you need an explanation of everything I am doing. You need to trust me at all times, even when you don't understand. You need to stop making me live up to what you think I should do, and you live up to what I think you should do. In other words, John, you need to understand this. You need to understand that if I'm not sovereign over all of your life, I'm not sovereign at all in your life. You need, you need to let me be in charge. The, the bottom line comes this way. You and I need to be like this seminary student a few years back. He was in seminary studying... And he's wrapping up his second year in seminary, and Aaron decides that he wants to do a ministry. God, I, I'm prepared for ministry. I want to get into some pastoral internship, some missionary internship. I want to do something for you. And he's praying, praying. Other classmates are getting appointments. They're getting assignments. Nothing comes up, nothing comes up. And he's like, God... I'm willing and I want to be in some type of a ministry this summer where I can do vocational ministry and I don't understand what you're doing. So he had to go home. Homeless Chicago. And so he goes home to Chicago and he had, before he went to seminary, he had driven city bus at times. So he went back to Chicago and he said, okay, I'm going to start driving city bus for the next three months. See, and he'll fill in different routes that people might have. And God, I don't know why you forgot about me here in Chicago. So he's back there and he's driving the route. And he says it's a miserable job. It's not something that thrills his heart. It's not what he wants to be doing, you know, just shuttling people around. And then on top of it, he's got a route where there's a gang that starts bothering him. They, it starts once a week, but then that he's filling in for somebody uh, for an extended time. And then it started becoming almost a daily routine. These five, six guys would get on the bus. They would refuse to pay. They would hassle him. They would threaten him. They'd hassle the other riders. They'd ride a few blocks. Everybody's terrified. They would, they would rough up somebody or bully somebody. Then they'd get off. And Aaron spouted off to them once. He told them you need to stop, and one of them slugged him. So he's intimidated by them. Now he's thinking, God, why did you put me here? Why am I in this, driving this bus, and now these guys are threatening me? And, oh, and he was so frustrated. 
One day he's driving his bus, and the gang showed up at the bus stop. They get on. He rolls his eyes. One of them pushes his shoulder like they started getting in the habit to do. He didn't say anything, and they start hassling some of the other riders. He drives the bus to the next bus stop down the block, and a police officer gets on. And Aaron, in his bravado, says, Officer, you see those guys back there in the back seat? They refuse to pay. They do this every time they get on. They refuse to pay, and they've been hassling the other riders. And the officer looks up, and a couple people, they don't nod their heads a whole lot. They just with their eyes, like, yeah, that's true. The officer goes back, and he says those, those five, six guys, he says, either you pay or you get off the bus. They got off. The officer came up, and he said, I need a ride. So, you know, he dropped his coin in, and he went two blocks after he wrapped around. And he gets up there, and he's thinking, okay, great, they're gone, whatever. And he has to wrap around. And when he wraps around the block going this way, who should show up at his next bus stop but those five, six gang members? They get on. They don't bother paying. They just beat him up. They beat him to unconsciousness. When he wakes up, he's in a pool of blood. He's got some ribs that are damaged. He ends up in the hospital. And when he's at the hospital, they, they broke open the, the coin box, took the monies, and robbed a couple other people, and they ransacked the bus. And so when he, he's in the hospital, recovering from his injuries for overnight, the police show up. He says, yeah, I can identify him. At least a couple of them I can identify so he goes to the police, he report, you know, it's all reported, and they, they bring the guys in, and he identifies two of the gang members. So he walks into court, several, you know, days go by, and he's going into court. When he walks in, he's still bloodied, he's still bruised. He looks and he thinks, these guys, part of the reason is nobody's really reached out ever to them. You know, what they're doing is bad, but somebody's got to reach out to them. And he's just overwhelmed with a burden to try to reach these two young men. And so he testifies, and everything goes through it goes through it very quickly. But it comes to, at the end of that session, the judge says, okay, I'm ready to pronounce sentence. And Aaron stands up and says, can I ask you a question, judge? He says, what? He says, how long will these guys go to jail? He says, well, both of them will go to jail for at least, you know, three, four months. And he says, judge, can I do that for them? Can I go to jail for them? He said, oh, I thought you were in school. No, I'll, I'll sit this semester out. Can I go to jail for him? And um, the judge says, well, I've never heard of such a thing before. And Aaron says, yes, you have. He says, no, I haven't. He says, yes, you have. And Aaron proceeded to tell everybody in the courtroom how Jesus Christ came and took the penalty of punishment of sin for every individual. Everybody was just spellbound. Nobody talked, could hear a pin drop. After he finished, he looked back at the judge and said, can I do this? The judge was beside himself, didn't know what to say, stumbled, and finally ordered it. Yeah, you go to jail for those guys. And so some of you are thinking, oh man, he made a mistake. Well, the way the Lord worked was not expected. He's in jail, and all of a sudden one day he gets a visitor. It's one of those gang members that made the effort to come and find him in jail and talks to him and is weeping. Why would you do this? Can I come back and visit you? He comes back the next week and he brings another one of the gang members. After several weeks have gone by, they have all visited several times. They have all gotten saved. Aaron finished up that, that jail term, re-enrolled, finished out his seminary, and guess what he did for a ministry? He went back to Chicago and did an inner ministry, city ministry working with gang members, leading dozens to the Lord wasn't quite what he thought God was going to do. But what's the difference? Remaining strong when you feel like you're struggling. Being an individual that makes this New Year's resolution. This is it. This is what you should decide to do this year. I will remain faithful to God no matter what happens this year. I will remain faithful to God no matter what happens this year. I don't care what the doctor's report is. I don't care what the, what the conflicts are. I don't care how somebody else treats me. I don't care what kind of roommate I get. I don't care how many tests they give me at college. I don't care what happens with my car. I don't care what happens in my house. I'm going to remain faithful to the Lord. 
I don't care what happens church-wise. I don't care what happens with, you know, with some of the neighbors. And, and you understand, I'm saying we, we care, but no matter how bad it gets, I'm going to be faithful to the Lord. What a resolution that every one of you can make. I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to be faithful to the Lord in worship, in prayer, in praise, in giving Him the glory. Dr. P.B. Job, there in India, New Delhi, he was starting to serve the Lord, went into an area and held meetings, revival meetings, evangelistic meetings, in an area outside New Delhi, India. As he preached the Word of God, several people started getting saved, and then more got saved, and more got saved. He continued holding those evangelistic meetings. And then after a few weeks went by, he got a threatening note. The threatening note says, if you continue to do this, you or one of your family members might be killed. Well, he wasn't sure what to do, but he prayed about it. And he said, Lord, this is what I really believe you want me to do. So he continued the ministry. And he continued it, and they, they went from the tent meetings to where all of a sudden they, st- they got a building, and they st- kept on preaching the word, kept on preaching the word. And they were growing and into a few hundred people and growing and growing. And then one day his son who was like 21 years old, who was studying to be a medical doctor, was driving through the city to come, and jo- to come and join him at that missions ministry that evening. And as his son was driving down the street, all of a sudden a car came barreling out of a side street, smashed into his son's car, broadside, and sent the car spinning till it crashed. And then this car that, did the, that created the accident drove off. The police, they investigated it. They checked things out, and they thought, by every indication, that this was intended that somebody intended to harm one of Dr. Job's family members. His son did not recover from the injuries. And Dr. Job wrote later, he said, I started thinking, my beloved son is dead because I, of what I was doing. How can I continue? He was so devastated for several days until he came across Philippians 1, I believe it's verse 12. These things have happened unto the furtherance of the gospel. And he determined, God, I'm still going to carry and do what you want me to do. I'm going to be faithful to you. And what he did is he continued ministry. And as time went by, they dedicated some facilities, orphanages and colleges, where they're training young people in his son's memory. To the point that hundreds have gotten saved, yea, several thousands since then. Why? Because a struggling saint determined that he would remain strong. He would not be offended in Christ. He would remain loyal no matter what happens. What about you? No matter what happens this year, I will remain loyal to Christ. That would lead us to say, okay, here's our prayer for one another. Here's how we encourage one another. Turn your eyes upon Jesus.